If you have a Bible with you, you can uh, make your way to 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. If you didn't bring one, you'll find it in the racks in front of you, or uh, maybe have it on your phone or your iPad. You can pick it up there. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 17 for our entire time together. We've been working through this hero series, uh, looking at these individuals that, that God said would rise to the surface in such a way that you actually should be looking at them. They, they were written about in Hebrews chapter 11 because these individuals rose to the surface in regards to their faith in God, in, in regards to how they modeled what faith is. So over the last couple of weeks as we've been looking at these different ones, we've defined faith this way. Faith allows you to see what other people cannot see so that you can do what other people cannot do. Faith allows you to see what others cannot see, and in turn, you're able to do what others cannot do because of Christ in you. Uh, Very briefly in a synopsis, here's what we've looked at so far. Noah, willing servant. Moses, unwilling servant. Gideon, unlikely servant. Very unlikely hero. Esther, we're going to put her in the category of being a timid hero. She was there, all in, but she was really afraid. And we understand that based on what we looked at last week. Today, looking at David, bold hero. This guy has got trust that's just oozing out of him. It just spills over. Confidence is right there. Here's the problem with David's story. It is incredibly familiar. Matter of fact, I would guess that most of you, if you were raised in church, have heard this more than ten times in your life. And I taught on David several years ago when we were a much smaller church. So some of this is going to seem very familiar to you. And the danger in that is that we come to it with preconceived ideas, thinking we know all about David's story with Goliath. I'm, my prayer for you this week, and it has been specifically even today, is that you and I would approach this with a fresh set of eyes, that we would allow God to speak to us through this story because God's Word is alive, Right? God's Word is active, it's sharp, and so it's always causing us to see new things. Here's what we know about David. Ultimately, he became the second king of Israel. First king was Saul. Saul messed up, and God had to remove him. David was chosen. He's born in 1034 B.C., thousand years before Jesus walked the earth, David's walking the earth. And God selects David to become the future king. His story starts in... Um, 1 Samuel chapter 16. I'm not going to get into that, but here's the background very briefly. The prophet Samuel is sent out to look for a new king because Saul has turned his back on God, not doing the things that God had asked him to do. So Samuel shows up in Bethlehem, and there's a man living there by the name of Jesse, and Jesse has eight sons. And Samuel tells him why he's there. And so Samuel sees these seven sons of Jesse in front of him, and he thinks certainly one of these guys is impressive enough God's going to choose him to be king. And God says to Samuel, no, none of the seven that you see. So Samuel says to Jesse, do you have any other sons? And he says, yeah, but you know, he's the youngest. He's out in the field. He's just a shepherd kid. They bring him in, and that's the one. That's David. David's this young man that comes in, and Samuel anoints him, literally pouring oil over his head. And yet he's confused by God's choice. And God says this back to Samuel. You're looking at the outside appearance. God looks at the heart. And I evaluate people based on what's inside. So from the very beginning, 
we see someone who is unmatched for the task from a human perspective. People look at him and assume he's not the guy, but God says he is the guy, and the difference is this. God says that one belongs to me. The same thing that he said about you. You belong to him. If you have faith in God through Jesus Christ, you belong to him. God says, I've chosen you. God chose David. And because he's God's, he can do what God needs him to do. Meaning he has a heart that's going to cause him to chase after God, even when he messes up. And if you know David's story, you know that he messed up over the course of his life, right? He's made some bad choices along the way. But we're looking at young David today, probably 20 years old in, the, in this story as it unfolds. Here's the background. It comes out of 1 Samuel 17 and verse 1. It starts out this way. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah. So background very briefly, they're invading Israel's territory. The Philistines, when you read about them in the Bible, just understand that they started out up in Greece. And they decided they've outgrown the territory. They want some more beachfront property. And so they leave the area of Greece, the Aegean Sea, and they sail south along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And they see the area that we know today as the Gaza Strip. And they think, prime beachfront property. We want that. And so they take it. But then they're not satisfied with that. So they decide they're going to do something else. Go with me to verse 2. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. Why? Because the Philistines have moved inland. They're not happy with the beachfront property. They want some of Israel's territory, the hilly region. Verse 3, the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Very important details that we get just in those short verses that there's this valley. So one army on one side of the mountain, another army on the other side, flat valley in the middle with a brook running through it, meaning there's some stones there. That'll play into the story later. But what we understand from verse 4 is that there's a champion in the midst of this. Now, when you think of champion, you immediately start thinking uh, LeBron James, Michael Jordan, individuals who stand out as though they rise above everyone else. Well, that's true in Goliath's case, but champion in this case means something different. It means a man who stands between. So when you think special ops, when you think Navy SEALs, when you think Army Rangers, you're then on the right track of thinking of Goliath. A champion in the biblical sense is someone who goes in front of the army beyond the front lines and fights on behalf of the army while the army stays in the distance in the background. This is someone who is a man in between according to the definition of the Hebrew language. So we're also told this individual is very remarkable because he's six cubits in a span. Now when you come to the Bible and you see the word cubit, it may confuse you, just remember this, very, very easy. The distance from your elbow to the top of your fingers, that's a cubit. About 18 inches for a normal man's arm. So six times 18 puts you at nine feet, right? Nine feet, and then it says six cubits in a span. Well, what's a span? It's the bottom of the wrist to the top of the fingers, six inches. So we have an individual who's nine feet, six inches tall. Wow. 
Okay? Now, can you take that literally? Well, we find giants being referred to in other places here in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. Here's a couple of examples. Joshua 11.22, there were no Anakim left in the land. Those are giants left in the land of the sons of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath. Well, that should be very familiar because that's where Goliath is from. And in Ashdod, some remained. Come down to Deuteronomy 3.11, we find that there's a giant king. For only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. That's another breed of giants. Behold, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Its length was nine cubits, and its width four cubits by an ordinary cubit. So it was a 13-foot-long bed. The guy was so big, that's what he needed. And then the third reference in First Chronicles 11. And there was an Egyptian who was seven and a half feet tall. So throughout the Bible, you have it littered with individuals, in the Old Testament especially, who reached great heights. What do we find when we get to modern times? Can we parallel that at all in our world? Well, in 1940, there's an individual who walked planet Earth. His name is Robert Wadlow, and you're looking at his picture. Yep, it's pretty shocking, isn't it? Okay, that's not Photoshop. This was taken long before Photoshop was available. Robert Wadlow is 8 feet 11 inches tall. Tallest man to have known to have walked planet Earth in modern times. Now, Robert Wadlow suffered from something known as giganticism, so when he walked, he actually needed something to support the weight of his body because his joints had grown too quickly. In Goliath's case, he doesn't seem to have suffered from that at all because he moves very freely and very fluidly. An individual who's seven inches or so taller than Robert Wadlow, who's a warrior on the battlefield. Now, if you're surprised by that, imagine the author who's writing this is so shocked that what you find in the next couple verses is he stops the story just to give us some detail. Look with me at the detail in verse 5. It says, he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. Now, scale armor is something that warriors would would wear on the battlefield that went literally in Old Testament times from their shoulders down below their kneecaps. You have an image up on the screen that you'll be able to see this, what we know as dragon armor. It literally made up like fish scales. It's metal layered upon top of metal. This image is from the medieval ages. If it was Old Testament times, it would cover all the way down to the kneecaps. And we're told something remarkable about what Goliath is wearing. Goliath is wearing... 5,000 shekels of this. Now, that's a measurement of weight in the Bible. It equals out to 175 to 190 pounds. The average American male today wears, weighs around 190 pounds. So, in other words, he's wearing you as a jacket. Okay? You get that? That's how massive this individual is. 5,000 shekels, about 190 pounds of metal that he wears as a windbreaker. Come forward to verse 6. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. I'm not sure what the term is for it today. Many children that play soccer understand what we're talking about when greaves, but something that protects the shins. His are made of bronze, and he can run with him with, with these bronze greaves on him. Some way he's protecting his shins, and he's got this javelin which is essentially a spear, a long-distance missile that he keeps behind him that he can throw. He keeps it strapped behind his shoulders. It says this in verse 7, The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. So heavy weapons are no problem for him. As a matter of fact, the weight of the spearhead is 25 pounds. 
So he can throw a 25-pound missile at you and apparently hit his target. Why do we get all this detail? Why is this, this so significant? This is the most detailed description you will find in the Bible of any human being. We don't get this kind of information about Jesus. We'd love to have it. We don't get this kind of information about Noah or Moses or Abraham. Why this individual and a Philistine on top of it? Because this author wants us to get it, to grasp who this is. In an age of hand-to-hand combat, this man is invincible. Think of him as the Abram's tank of his time. Literally cannot be stopped. So we move forward into verse 8 with those thoughts in mind. It says this, He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out and draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. So when he stands in the valley in the flat area and says, choose a man to come down to me, it appears that Goliath is speaking for the entire Philistine army. What's going on there? Well, this is representative warfare. It's called the contest of champions. When a king of one nation could choose a warrior for himself and the king of another nation could choose a warrior so they didn't have to wipe out their entire military, they would choose one man to go one-on-one with another individual. So this Goliath is standing there literally saying, I'm the man, I am the strength of the Philistine army, and I want some man flesh, so bring him to me. What's he doing? Old Testament smackdown. He's really putting it in their face, letting them know, there's no takers, no one dares speak to me. Verse 10, again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Do you think he only did this once? Forty days and forty nights, according to verse 16. Day and night, eighty times. Ever had a giant in your life? Might be financial, might be physical, can be spiritual, can be relational, it might be your past. That might seem like a giant to you, the, the things that you've done. What does that look like when your giant appears, totally ripping you down? Well, that's very consistent with this word here when he says, I defy. It's this Hebrew word, haraf. I want you to see this word. It's in your notes and it's up on the screen. But it literally means to expose someone, to strip them down. Goliath is stripping Israel publicly. I harass you. I defy you. I'm stripping you to show people that you are not powerful. Day after day, pounding out the words. Maybe you can identify with that. If you've had a giant type element in your life, maybe you've got one right now, constantly ripping you down. Well, then you can identify with these people and what they're feeling at this moment in time. We get some more background detail when we go to verse 12. It says this, Now David was the son of an Ephratite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. Verse 14, David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul. Very important, because that means David's brothers are on the front line. They have walked in the ways of Saul, according to the Hebrew language. He's got three older brothers who have already gone off to the battle. 
So that's background material, so we understand what's unfolding here. And we're told in verse 16, the Philistine came forward morning and evening, 40 days, and took his stand. So as this unfolds, Goliath stands out in the open. Anyone? Anyone? Anyone bold enough to take me on? Now, he seems like a ripe target for a sniper, right? Seems like somebody from a distance could pick him off. Why don't they do that? They don't want to stir the hornet's nest. And we understand when we back up a couple chapters to chapter 13 why they don't want to stir the hornet's nest. Look with me up on the screen. 1 Samuel 13, 5. The Philistines assembled to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. See, they carry heavy weapons. Israel has no chariots. Now, the thing that we know about chariots is they're only good on open, flat ground. They're not all-terrain vehicles. They can't climb hills. So Israel is very comfortable to stay in the mountains, a distance removed. They're willing to surrender the valley and let some of that land go because they don't want to confront this warrior and this powerful force they're up against. Verse 17, we go back to Jesse again. Then Jesse said to David, his son, Now take for your brothers an epaph of this roasted grain and these ten loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. Verse 18, bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. Really important detail you want to remember for the story. Verse 19, for Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So daddy thinks they're actually fighting. Daddy doesn't know that they're in hiding, that this giant has arrived on the scene. Why? Well, it's been a while since Jesse has received any news, and he's too old to go there himself. He can't possibly go there. So he says to David, you got to go for me. So David has an assignment from dad. Bring me a report. So we discover that David is coming into this battle in a really different way. He's not prepared for it. His brothers are in the army. He's not. He's a shepherd. Michael showed you the image on the screen of the pasture land. He's used to a very quiet, relaxed life. That's all he hears. He, He never hears Goliath yelling out death threats. His job is to care for sheep. Now, Jesse in no way is going to put his son in danger. So in verse 17, you see some detail that he expects David to arrive while his brothers are still in camp. But that's not God's plan, because God is providential. God orchestrates things, as we saw with Esther last week. God directs our steps. Scripture says this, Proverbs 16, 9, the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. So God orchestrates the events so that when David shows up, it's as the army's going to the front line. So David doesn't get to visit with his family in camp. Go with me to verse 20. So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with a keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. So David stands watching this, something he's never seen before. He's seeing an army go to battle. He hears the war cries. This has gone on for 40 days. 40 days Goliath has been shouting out. So he leaves behind the cheese and crackers with the keeper of the bags and runs to the front line. Go with me to verse 22. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper 
and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines. And he spoke these same words, and David heard them. Now remember, this is the first time he's ever heard this. And even from a distance, the shout is so loud and so threatening that it interrupts David's conversation with his brothers, whom he hasn't seen for 30 days. Wow! Have you ever seen any... Wow! Have you guys... Where'd you go? See, the next passage tells us they all ran. David is left completely by himself. Everybody else saw what was coming, and they decided to skedaddle it out of there. Go with me to verse 24. When all the men of Israel saw the man, the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. That's that word, haraf, again. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. That's been more than a month. Forty days and forty nights of being stripped naked. They've been ripped apart. Haraf. The people who are supposed to be the people of God have been taken apart by this individual. And nothing has changed in 40 days except one change in the language. And I want you to see it because it's in the passage we just read in verse 25. It says, have you seen this man coming up? Look with me up on the screen at this word, Allah, A-L-A, or Allah, it can be pronounced that way, to ascend, to go up the mount. See, now Goliath in verse 8 said, send me a man. He's down in the valley, right? He's no longer down in the valley. Three times you just read in that last passage, he's coming up to defy the army. He's coming up to stand against Israel. He's ascending up their mountainside now. No longer in the valley, he's walking up towards them and calling them out. See, you give your giant enough space in your life, and he will move right into your territory. He will take over. Eventually, you'll have no space left. Now, David is mystified by what he's seeing and what he's hearing. Verse 25, they said, somebody's got to kill this guy, and if they do, the king is going to enrich him. Now, that really catches David off guard because of the reward. Go forward with me to verse 26. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him saying, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? He's got two things competing here, this massive man and yet the reward that's associated with it. The king's going to give honor to someone who takes that guy out, but he's also going to give him his daughter, so he's getting prestige and then he's going to make the IRS go away? Wow! That's a reward. You get all the money, you get the king's daughter, and no more IRS in your life. This is a big, big reward. It's huge. So you can understand David's response that way, saying, what's going to be done? But there's something else associated with it. Finish the passage. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should haroth? the armies of the living God. 
The people answered him in accord with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. So I can see David's response. Is there some catch? Is there something I'm missing here? Why is no one accepting this? He not only strips us naked, he's defying the living God. Go into the next verse, verse 28. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger burned against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, what have I done now? Was it not just a question? A little Old Testament sibling rivalry, right? You got an older brother in your life, older sister. Maybe you are the older brother or the older sister. You know what that, what's going on here. It's the oldest against the youngest. He's slamming him. He's accusing him of abandoning the family business of just being intrigued with what's going on here. So this is really interesting at this point. Up till now, all we've seen is detail. It's, it's laid the background. But how interesting when David is about to go into the biggest battle of his life that he's being falsely accused of trying to do something ungodly when he's trying to do something godly. And who's coming against him but his own family member? What's motivating that? A little jealousy maybe? Misunderstanding of David's purposes? Now this is what's remarkable. And in case of every hero that we've seen so far, David is no exception. A hero of biblical proportions has a capacity. And their capacity is to rise above the circumstances. To rise above the little chatter that's taking place below and see the real purpose for why they're there a capacity to focus. So what you see in the next verse is David ignores his accuser. He rises above it and he moves back to the real battle. What's really important here? Verse 30, then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing. And the people answered the same thing as before. When the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul and he sent for him. So no sooner are the words out of David's mouth Then somebody runs and tells Saul, and immediately King Saul calls for him. Are are the people waiting for a hero to step up? Sure looks like it, right? Immediately they want him. Now, can you imagine the moments in between? The moments in between when King Saul anticipates David and actually sees David, okay? A little little sense of, I, I finally have someone. I finally have an individual who's going to come forward. After 40 days of embarrassing me? Why would King Saul be thinking that? Scripture says that Saul is the tallest man in Israel. He rises head and shoulders above all the other Jews. He wears the king's armor. Everybody's looking to the king. He's the most powerful warrior they have. You can imagine the sense of embarrassment that Saul is feeling hiding in his tent. So when David opens the door and walks through, well, let's just go forward with the passage. Verse 32, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. So let that settle in for a moment. You've got a mental image in your mind of Goliath. David has actually seen him. He offers to fight Goliath Despite the overwhelming odds, he's no match physically. 
20 years old at best. And he says, let no one lose heart. Is that more than just youthful optimism? Is that someone who knows something that other people don't know? Look at verse 33 in Saul's response. Then Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. Well, he has been a warrior from his youth. So Saul is completely unimpressed. He's a man of war, David. He will squish you. Now, that Goliath is still alive. Let's just be real. It says something significant to us. He's a professional warrior. It tells us he's never lost a fight. He's never been defeated. So from a human perspective, Goliath has no competition in David. David is a shepherd. He's untrained. He wears no armor whatsoever. Goliath is a man of war, an immense strength, trained in battle, but he has a severe weakness. And I know immediately you're thinking of that little spot in the middle of his forehead. That's not his severe weakness. His severe weakness is he opposes the living God. He stands in defiance of God. Goliath has been left alone for a while, and he has prospered for a season. But your God is not an unconcerned spectator. He's very aware of when his name is being defamed and when his people are being taken advantage of. And your God will bring out vindication at the right time. Move forward with me in the, right, in the story. Verse 34, But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and I attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he arose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. I don't know if you like to write in your Bible. I do. I write in the margins of my Bible quite regularly. If you do, this would be a good place to write next to that verse just this word. Remember. This is what you see David doing here. He's remembering how God has provided in his past. So David remembers, my God met my need in the past, therefore I can stand in the future. It gives you the confidence to stand. I've been in dangerous situations before, Saul. God has always been there for me. So just as God delivered in the past, he's going to deliver again. Besides that, Saul, he's coming against the living God. See, you see a godly man taking an ungodly man to church here. He's teaching Saul what God is capable of doing. Why is God rejecting Saul as the king? Because he's rejected God. David is helping him correct his thinking. Verse 37, And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. It's code for I'll pray for you. I won't go myself, but I'll pray for you. How does David have that kind of courage? You, you might look at that passage and say, I want that. I want that kind of boldness. When someone comes to talk to me about God or I find myself in a conversation, I'd love to have that kind of courage. Where does he get that from? At such a young age, my experience is that courage is cultivated in theology. David's courage is cultivated in his theology. And theology is a big $10 word, but let's put it this way. 
his, his courage is cultivated in his personal understanding of God. That's what theology is, your understanding of who God is. David has courage because he understands who God is. Scripture says he's a man after God's own heart. Truth is, you can't be a man after God's own heart and not pursue the heart of God. It's not possible. How do you do that? Through his word, through experience, through prayer. Let me show you an example of this. The aged David in his 60s, writing about the young David in his 20s. Psalm 119 is David looking back over his life. Look at what he wrote. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. David not only knows God theologically, but he knows Him experientially. We just saw that in verse 37. The Lord rescued me from the paw of the lion. That same Lord is going to rescue me again. See, his theology works with his experience. The two are hemmed together. So David's been placed in circumstances where he has to trust God. The alternative is to run home and cower under daddy's kitchen table. Because the dad sent him to the battlefield not to go to battle. So he has a choice now. He has to decide, just like Esther, will I go stand before the king or will I just say, I'd rather not be part of that? Moses, same thing. Gideon, the exact same thing. This is the moment of decision. So what you're witnessing here is personal resolve. Do I trust God or not? So David is standing against what's popular. What's popular at this time? Run out in the morning, make a whole bunch of war noise, and then see Goliath and run away, right? And then stand over here and talk with a whole bunch of other people who ran away about what the king will do. That's what's popular. David's not going to do what's popular because he can see what others cannot see. It's allowing him to do what others will not do because he's a man of faith. So we're watching it lived right out in front of our eyes here. Verse 38, Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. See, Saul is telling David to do what he knows to do. At this period of time during ancient warfare, when someone would go out and participate in the conquest of warriors where one man went against another man, they were expected to wear the king's armor. For one, it looked really good for the king. I mean, for thousands of people who are from a distance and they can't tell whether or not King Saul's walking on the battlefield, hey, look at there, the king's armor, the king, Saul is going to fight for us. But that's what Saul knows to do. He's leaning into his own understanding. Well, rule number one is this. Don't take advice from people too afraid to go to the battle themselves. And that's what you see here. This individual is too afraid. So David's going to do what he knows to do. He has some talent. He has some skill. God equips you with what you need for the battle. What you'll notice in this story is David doesn't instantly become a great javelin thrower. He doesn't instantly become a great swordsman miraculously. 
God uses something very simple that David has had all his life. He's been equipped already. See, the truth is God has given you opportunities which you are uniquely qualified for that no one else is. And he trusts you in that moment with the giant that's in your life that you'll use your relationship with him and the skills he's already built into you. He would not allow you to face it if you were not capable. Scripture promises us that over and over again, that God will not allow you to go into a temptation by which you're going to be defeated. God, trust us with the giants in our life. Verse 40, he took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. Now, stones were a normal part of weaponry at this period of time. King Uzziah actually equipped the armies of Israel with stones when they were going into battle for their slings. You see an example of that in Second Chronicles. It says this, Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and sling stones. Well, David's got this natural supply of stones right there, but he's got no defensive armor. He's only packing a sling. What's he going to do in this situation? Well, on the opposite side of the valley, what Goliath sees is a stick because the sling is too small, and the sling is in the pouch, and so he jumps to a conclusion that that's David's weapon. You want to insult a man of war? Send a boy out into the valley with a stick to fight him. You talk about poking the hornet's nest. Go to verse 42. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beast of the field. Is this the best you have? A man whose ego is as big as his body is tall is very easily insulted. Why is he so arrogant? He's never been beat, and he's looking at a kid. You imagine the shock and the irritation when David walks onto the battlefield? And add one more detail to it. It says he was ruddy and handsome. The Hebrew word is yafe aim. He's pretty, all right, In, in a manly way. He looks really good. He's got no battle scars. He's never been to battle. Goliath is covered with him. He's grisly. He's been to battle. And so he disdains David. He hates the way he even appears, let alone the way he's about to talk to him. Great passage coming up. I love this. This guy's about to preach to a giant. Verse 45, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beast of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. Hey, giant, do you even know who you're fighting against? You're fighting against the Lord of hosts. 
Now, he's been threatening David in singular tense language. You look at the passage really clearly. He's talking about the battle between Goliath and David. David turns the tables on him and starts using plural tense forms. He starts talking about the entire army being wiped out, not just Goliath. Why does he do that? Verse 47 is the key. He says, so that all the assembly may know. Who's the assembly, church? People who've been standing and watching and being intimidated to the degree that they're willing to run away and stand and talk about the giant, talk about the king's reward, but they've forgotten about the God in heaven so that all this assembly may know that there is a God in Israel. Why does he say that? Because they've forgotten. So he's going to give you into our hands. See, ultimately, your fight for the kingdom is not about you. It's part of a much, much bigger story. People are watching. People are encouraged by you taking on those battles. Other people are watching. So David's making it really, really clear. This battle is not merely personal between you and I, Goliath. This is about the God of heaven and about his assembly, his people who are watching this ultimately for the glory of God. So that's why he says what he does in verse 47. For the battle is the Lord's. For the battle is the Lord's. Say that with me on the third time. For the battle is the Lord's. Get that down in your head when you come up against your giant. The battle belongs to God. So David goes on to say, I possess firepower that comes from a completely different realm. That is really consistent with the New Testament. You look at what Paul wrote to the church. 2 Corinthians says this. 2 Corinthians 10, 3. We do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful. Coming from God. Now, if David wanted to irritate Goliath, he was successful because it really gets Goliath moving. As you watch it unfold here, David doesn't wait for Goliath. He loads his gun while he's running into the battle. Watch with verse 48. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. There's no turning back now, is there? He can't do what he wants to do, probably in his heart to some degree, saying, what did I get myself into? But rather, he's willing to run into the battle. And every eye is focused on David. He's running toward the giant, unintimidated. How does he do that? Many people would look at that and say, how is that possible? Here's a question. What's your greatest fear when you're facing whatever that giant is in your life? It's, it's, it's intimidation, right? The, the sense of, I could get destroyed from this. I could fall because of this battle. I'd rather not go there. So our greatest struggle is the intimidation that comes with the giant. David runs to the giant. How does he do that? Well, his theology has been cultivated, right? He's a man who's been pursuing God. He knows God's Word. He's a man after God's own heart. So he's right away in the very beginning not only taking Saul to school, but all of us by saying, the battle is God's. The battle is the Lord's. It's the Lord's. It's the Lord's. Regardless of what happens, it belongs to God. We understand that Goliath is armor-plated, right? He's got all this gear on him. He's got this opening 
right here, just below the helmet, just above the eye sockets. He's got this opening, and that's what we're told here in verse 49. Part A, and David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. One single stone slicing through the air, and it really sinks deep, just like watching a redwood tree. We see that in the next part of the verse, verse 49b, and the stone stone sank deep, sank into his forehead, so that he fell on his face to the ground. Boom. No birds singing. Everything's quiet. The Philistines are paralyzed. They've never seen anything like this. He's been a warrior since his youth. His armor bearer has never seen Goliath defeated. They're frozen until they realize they're next. And the passage tells us that they run. Go with me to verse 50. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. Verse 51, Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Go all the way back to the beginning of the story. Jesse sent David out, and he said, I want you to bring home some news. Tell me how your brothers are doing. How'd you like to be in Jesse's house that night? Hey, Dad, I'm home. How'd your day go? Let me tell you about mine. We're told that if you finish the passage, I'm not going to get the rest of it out today, but if you read the rest of the passage, you'll find that David took Goliath's weapons and, and put them over the mantle of his fireplace took him home as a reminder of what God had done in his life. But as you leave here this morning, you've got to take this truth with you. David would not have understood God's capacity. He would have never known God's power if he didn't go to the battle line. Too often, God's people back down at the smallest threat, the tiniest intimidation, a conversation in the workplace or with friends at dinner. We hear the God talk come up and decide sometimes just to back away. I, I, I'm not prepared to go there. Well, God believes you are prepared to go there. He says He will put the words in your mouth even when you think you have very limited understanding of God. Your, your concept of His Word may be very, very tiny. Yet God would not bring you to a battle or to a conversational engagement if he hadn't prepared you for what you're about to take on, especially that applies when you come into trials in your life. God would not bring you into trials in your life if he hadn't prepared you for what you're about to take on. So like with David, from a human viewpoint, he didn't look like he was any match for what he's about to go against. But God saw, God sees the heart He knows what you're capable of if we will trust Him. So it's really Christ in you which gives you the strength because you're not going to the battle alone, right church? You're going to the battle with Jesus in you. That's what Scripture tells us. So in this story especially, God has reminded us, every one of us, the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. You want to say it with me on the third one? The, The battle is the Lord's. Let's seal it with prayer. 
Father, we thank you for this story and for causing the writers to put it down in Scripture. It's inspired, and we recognize that, and we declare that you wrote it for our benefit. Your word declares that you have written the things that happened in the past for the encouragement and the instruction of the believers who are alive today. We are instructed, Father, and we are encouraged. I pray that as you send us out now that we would go with boldness in our heart, that we would be willing to take on whatever you bring our way and look for ways to bring glory and honor to you in the midst of it. Thank you for this example in David. It's in Jesus' name we praise you and thank you. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.